Good morning. Um, my name is Celeste. I'm going to be reading God's word for us today. Um, if you would stand, if you're willing and able, as we hear from God's word. Um, as uh, Paul was talking, it just kind of reminded me of why we stand. It can just be kind of a routine, but we stand because we love God's word. And I know for me, it kind of does two things. For me, it helps me to um, honor, respect, and glorify God for his perfect word that he's given us. Um, but for me, internally, it also helps me to just remember that the words that we're going to hear from the Bible are the best and most important words that we'll hear today and this morning. No offense to Paul and what he'll share, um, but just good to kind of posture ourselves that way. So this is uh, Luke 20, uh, 9 through 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that he would, they would give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Feel free to grab a seat. Well, thank you, Celeste. Well, if you are just joining us via live stream or podcast, we're going to be doing, again, something a little bit different than I already briefed the room on, and that is we're going to walk through this parable as we conclude our parable series, but really use this as an idea also of how do we approach and engage Scripture on Sundays, yes, but then also every day. So I, I just want to literally give you an idea of how I approach a text of scripture, both when I'm preparing to preach a sermon, the, the times that I get to throughout the year, uh, but then also just how I approach it every day with the hopes that this helps and equips you to do the same so that you can feed yourself from God's word every day because that's so important. Uh, let me give you just a few tips and tools before we dive into uh, to something that I like to do, to the framework and method that I like to use. Um, tip number one is you're gonna need, I think, just a good Bible, obviously, but I would recommend getting a good study Bible or a Bible that has cross-references, meaning it will kind of allude to different passages in the Bible that um, whatever passage you're studying may be related to or alluding to. Really helpful tool. It cuts down your study time fast because some of the questions you may have might actually be in the study Bible. So I use the ESV study Bible, but there's a lot of great ones out there. So get a good study Bible. Number two, when you sit down, really helpful to have a pen. Um, I've got some paper up here with some of my notes, but you can use a journal. I often use a journal, but something where you can write down your thoughts on, questions on, notes, anything whatsoever, just highlighter, 
there, pen, paper, and then also you can uh, make notes in your Bible um, as well. Uh, a third thing I think that you need, in addition to a good study Bible or just a good Bible, um, pen, paper, reference, stuff like that, is um, a, a framework or a method. So like, how are you going to actually a- approach um, the text. How are you going to approach the passage? I'm going to give you mine here. There's others out there, but I'm just going to give you mine that's been very helpful for me. Um, in the early days, if you use it, you'll probably have to allude to the questions a lot. Now I've been using it for so long, I just naturally just do it as I'm going along. Um, but it's a helpful framework. I'll give it to you here in just a minute. But the final thing, the final tip I would give to you before we get going is, is to start in prayer. You want to start in prayer because um, when I am sitting down with God's word and I'm opening it, really a few things are happening. Uh, And as we'll allude to here in a minute, first, I'm trying to get a sense of what has God said once and for all in his word. Um, I actually love what Sierra said. The most important words we're going to hear is the words we just heard when Sierra read scripture. So when I sit down, I want to say, Jesus, like what I most need to hear is what have you said once and for all in your word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And so I'm going to pray, Holy Spirit, if you inspire this, inspire me to understand this. Um, And but I also want to then say, now, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? So what have you said But then also, what are you saying now to me as I have my Bible open in front of me? And and show me what I need to see. Help me to understand it. But then also show me what you want me to take away from it. Um, What needs to change within me. Then also just show me Jesus here and remind me of how awesome Jesus is. So with that in mind, I want to pray for us and do what I'm encouraging you to do. And then we'll dive in together and I'll introduce the framework that I use. Jesus, we do thank you that we get to spend time in your word every Sunday. What, what a privilege, what a joy, what a weight. Because uh, it does matter, your word is so important, but it is such a privilege and a joy. God, I praise today's gonna be a little bit different, that you'd help us to lean in and engage um, as we're gonna be in the kitchen together, so to speak, learning how to do this. And um, God, I pray though, that not only would we learn how to do it, Lord, would you show us what Luke 20, the parable of tenants, meant in its original context, what it means, and then what you were speaking to us today in our time through it. Help us to see Jesus in the gospel so clearly. We love you. Amen. All right, so I like to have four key questions um, as my framework for how I approach the Bible in my time um, in the Bible. Uh, here are the four questions. I'm going to be, by the way, looking here because I'll be controlling the slides. So if I look down here, that's kind of what I'm doing. I thought it'd be helpful if I did that for us today. Four questions that I ask when I approach reading from the Bible. Um, what does it mean? What does the passage mean? Why does it matter? Where is the gospel and how should I pray? So what does it mean? What did it mean in its original context? And what does it mean? What is, what is the Spirit saying through the Bible? Why does it matter? Where is the gospel and how I should pray? I'm going to get to each of these and give a little bit more in terms of like some specifics of how to do it. But I thought it'd be helpful to walk through the goals of each of these questions. So what does it mean? I really am trying to get a sense of what was God communicating um, in the original, like to the original readers or hearers of this text. So like what was God actually saying to the people who would have originally read this um, and heard this? This is crucial because some people start with, well, what does this mean to me? That's not the best place to start because if you don't know what it originally meant to the original people, you're going to apply it in some kind of wonky, weird ways potentially. I actually um, knew someone one time who read the passage where um, Pharaoh tells um, God's people, you've got to produce the same amount of work, but I'm going to cut the supplies I give you in half. And she, uh, her takeaway was, well, sometimes God just wants us to work harder. And I said, hey, you love that you're reading the Bible, but there's only one thing, like Pharaoh's the bad guy. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like, we don't understand what it'd be like, Pharaoh kind of a thing. And, 
And so, and, and listen, she was learning. And by the way, when we, when we read the Bible, we're going to have those times where you miss her. Like, you know how you get better at doing it? You do it. And so I wasn't trying to recognize her. I was just trying to gently correct her. But it's just an example of first start with what it meant in the original um, meaning of it and then go to what it means to me. So I'm, I'm trying to think through that. I'm trying to think through, are there any timeless principles or themes or patterns that are in this passage, but that you see throughout scripture and you see throughout history and that you see in my life? So that's what does it mean? Then I'm going to ask, why does it matter here? I'm really trying to think through, like, why is this passage important to our world, um, to the church, um, or and or to me. Another thing within here I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about constantly is like, what are the main takeaways or points of application that in light of what this pas- passage means that I need to apply to my life? But here's the key question, and you don't need to skip this. Don't do these first two without doing this third one. Where is the gospel? Here's why this matters. Um, in, in this passage we read today, and we're going to be looking at, there's a group of people, the scribes and the chief priest, they knew the Bible really well. I mean, like some of them had the entire Old Testament memorized and they applied it meticulously. So when it comes to what does it mean and why does it matter, they were awesome at those questions. But in the book of John, um, Jesus looks at these same people and he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you'll have eternal life or find eternal life, which was true. But then he says, but you don't come to me. In other words, like we can get the first two questions right, but if we don't go to Jesus and the, and the passages that show us how awesome Jesus is, we've missed it. And also why this question so matters is it reminds us that like as you read God's word, you might be convicted about some things, places you're falling short. When you ask where's the gospel, it reminds you your acceptance before God is not dependent on how well you apply that passage of scripture. It's dependent on Jesus' finishes worked on the cross. Making sense so far? Okay. So, final question that I ask is, is how should I pray? Um, in light of what I've read, I'm going to ask, Jesus, I need your help applying this to my life. Help me. But also, another thing that's not up there that I, would, that I would add is, I'm just spending some time thanking God for how he's revealed who he is in this passage, what he's done for me, or what he is doing at that moment. And so, I'm just taking some time. I'm thanking him, and I'm just praying, God, help me now as I try to live in light of everything else that I've learned in these three questions. Tracking? All right, that being said, now let's dive in. What does it mean? When I'm going into a passage, I'm looking at a few things. I'm looking at key words. Um, for example, in, in here, uh, the word vineyards took out to me. I'm like, okay, I probably need to figure out what that's referring to here. Uh, so I'm looking for key words. I'm looking for the tone of the passage. Um, a few other things I'm looking at when I'm trying to figure out what does it mean is just um, any like, verses that give me clues. Are there any big verses that pop out? What is the context um, of, of what's going on here? Just before this parable, um, the authorities are really challenging Jesus' authority. So part of this parable is about basically saying, I have all the authority. I'm the son of God. <laughs> like, so part of why he's telling this is that reason. I'm also just thinking, like, what's the genre? The genre here is a parable, and so parable uses symbolism. And so I'm asking, not what does every little detail symbolize, but hey, what are the big symbols here? Um, there's a lot of characters in this parable, and usually the characters will represent like someone that Jesus is alluding to. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, what are the characters meaning? These are the questions I'm asking. And here's what I'm going to say right now. This can be a lot to take in in a short time. We're going to send out the notes. I'm just kind of giving you a sense of the questions I'm asking. I'm going to then show you an example of how I then took some of these questions and applied it to Luke 20. Okay? 
Now, taking these kinds of questions and others, what I then did is I just went through the passage, and as I did the yellow things, these are just people and characters in the passage. So like I began to think of, okay, who are the characters here um, in terms of if I'm trying to understand what the original meaning was? Um, I then went kind of back through and think, what are the key words or sentences that I need to write questions um, about or think about? Uh, it was up there on the screen, but I didn't think I said it. I love just to ask questions. Like, hey, like, why did Jesus say this? Why did he say that? Like in this passage, um, what is Jesus referring to by the cornerstone? Um, Why is it that if the cornerstone is rejected, then it's exalted? Like, what does it mean that that stone will then crush them if they reject it? I'm asking all these kinds of questions, okay? If you were going through this, you may highlight different stuff. Totally cool. Totally awesome. I'm again showing you how you can do it on your own. By the way, this is why it's really great to study the Bible with a community of people. Because as you're going through it, as other people are, they're going to see things you don't, you're going to see things they don't, and that's how we all get better together. All right, here's where this led me. I then had kind of all these characters and these big questions, at least, that I was asking of like, why is the vineyard significant? What does it mean for the owner to give the vineyard to others? And I was wrestling with these different things and a few things helped me unlock the meaning. Again, I will say this is where a good study Bible helped me. And then I've got little cross references here because what I saw is that throughout this parable, Jesus is alluding to a lot of the Old Testament. Specifically with the vineyard, what I found was that he was referring to Isaiah 5. And so if we're going to figure out what the vineyard means, and therefore this will tell us also who the man or the owner is in the story, knowing Isaiah 5 would help. Well, let's read Isaiah 5 together. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And so far I'll say this gives no sense of what the vineyard is or who planted it. But when we look at the next one, and this is verse 7, he hewed a vine bat in it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's like right here. Now I realize Jesus is telling a story and referring to the Old Testament about the people of Israel who were the people of God. So now I know that the man or owner in the story is God. I know that the vineyard is referring to the people of God, in this case, Israel in the Old Testament. But then I'm thinking, okay, like, well, then who maybe are the servants in the story? Again, my, my Bible alluded to a passage that I then looked up in Jeremiah 7, and it tells us this. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I've persistently sent all of my servants, who? The prophets. So Jesus in this story, he's telling about this person who plants a vineyard and then they send servants. What Jesus is alluding to is the whole Old Testament history where God calls the people of Israel to be his people. And then throughout almost 1500 years of history, sends them prophets to speak God's words to them. But then the history of Israel is, guess what? Over and over again, they are rejected. They don't listen. They say no. And then now, all of a sudden, he then brings it to the current day, because in the story, remember, what does the owner say? Well, I will send my beloved son. Interesting, that that phrase, beloved son. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I'll tell you. It's it's found that phrase in another place in Luke, in Jesus' baptism, where you hear the voice of God say, this is my beloved son. 
You, you see, and again, you're like, I don't know if I'd get it that fast. And you, you may not. Again, the, the longer you do, it becomes easier. But you see how it's just starting to kind of build on these different thoughts, and it's starting to all come together for me. Okay, now, I'm not going to answer every little question because I'm about to give you kind of my big thoughts and takeaways on the meaning of the passage, and I'll do it there. But I just, I'm doing this to kind of show, like, here's how I'm cooking. <laughs> here's how I'm working in the kitchen. And let me just encourage you, like, I don't know that I could do that. Everyone has to start somewhere. I've been doing this now for a couple decades. It's easier over time. And again, having a great study Bible helps you big time. It helps me even with this passage because it can be a tricky passage. All right. So let's go now um, to kind of what my big takeaways were. So I'm trying to find my spot on my notes here. Actually, let me go before I do that because I almost missed something. So I was really examining um, just everything in the passage, but then what I like to do at the end of each passage is say, are there any timeless biblical themes, principles, like there? Uh, Some helpful questions are, what does this passage tell me about God or Jesus, like his character, who he is, what he does? What does this tell me about humanity, about me, (laughs) right? Um, What does this tell me about, like, our humanities or my relationship with God? Like I'm asking these kinds of questions to then try to think, are there any timeless truths or themes that are found in this passage? All right, this led me now to the notes that I took. I'm literally just gonna walk you through my takeaways. If you were doing this, you would phrase them differently. You may have some things that stuck out to you that did not stick out to me. But as I'm thinking about my findings and conclusions about what Luke 20 means, here's some things that are sticking out to me. Jesus is calling out the Jewish leaders for what they have done in the past before these guys ever lived in the Old Testament. It was the leaders, typically the kings of Israel and the religious leaders of Israel who refused to listen to the prophets. Over and over again, they're like, nope, we're doing it our way. You told us to do this, but we're doing this. We're not. In fact, they would often put the, like the prophets to death or they would beat them and not listen to them. So he's basically saying, this is what you've done. He's calling them out for what they've done, for what they're doing now because the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day are doing what? They're rejecting God's son. God sent his son Jesus in an incredible act of grace and mercy, sends his son Jesus, and now the leaders are not listening to him either. And Jesus is calling him out for it. Now, by the way, do you understand why at the end of this passage, it says that they were mad at Jesus? Because they could tell right away Jesus is calling them out. Like he, they could tell what he's doing. And what they will do, they're going to put Jesus to death. And he's warning them of the consequences for that. Because as we'll get to here in a second, if Jesus, the son, is also the cornerstone, Jesus says, listen, like I can be the cornerstone, the thing you build the foundation of your life on, or I can be the stone that crushes you if you reject me. That leads me to the second thing. The rejected son and the rejected stone in the passage are the same and have the same end. Um, In the passage, Jesus is referring to one of the Psalms in the Old Testament where it talks about this cornerstone that's been laid. Some people reject it, but then guess what God does? He exalts it. In the same way, Jesus is now saying, you're going to reject me, God's going to exalt me. So you might, as the leaders and therefore as the people of Israel now, the Jewish nation at that time, rejects me, but God is going to exalt me. That was another thing that I wrote down. A few more. What the people do with Jesus is going to determine what God does with them. So that's basically what he's saying is, I'm the beloved son. What you do with me is then going to determine what God does with you. Jesus' rejection, fourth note, by the Jewish leaders is what leads to the church and to the Gentiles being brought in. Did you catch that place when um, Celeste was reading, or even as we've been going through it, about where um, God, Jesus actually is basically kind of debriefing the parable a little bit, and he says, what do you think the owner will do? He will come and basically destroy the people who had rejected his son and killed him, put him to death, and he will give the vineyard to 
others. Who are these others? And what is the vineyard? Well, the vineyard isn't actually Israel because like Israel is no longer going to be Israel. That doesn't make sense. What instead he's saying is, hey, the idea of the people of God is no longer going to be about, are you Jewish? But do you believe in me, Jesus, as the Messiah? And that's going to comprise both Jewish people who believe in Jesus, but then also Gentiles. And if you're new to church, Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew, which guess what? It's pretty much all of us, unless you have Jewish background. And so if you're in here and you're not Jewish, we're here, like, in part because of this text. Woohoo! You're not as excited as I am. And I'm just saying, like, because the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus, that led to then, not his rejection of the Jews completely, but basically saying the people of God are now not going to be found on a racial identity, being a Jew, but instead on their faith in Jesus as the cornerstone. Make it, are you tracking with me? I know I've asked a lot. Just Because this is more like inviting you into the kitchen. If I was cooking with you, I'd say, hey, is this like, like you make sense what you need to do here? Like, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me. All right. So guess what? We're here because of this. Let me go to one final thing, and then we'll go to more of what does this matter? Why does this matter? As I was looking at some of the timeless principles and themes, I saw a few that stuck out. Our sin. And I'll actually just go through this one time. Like, you see humanity's sin on full display here, right? Um, you see it in that notice, like, God is the owner. His people and their leaders were supposed to be the tenants. The tenants don't have authority. They have responsibility to do as the owner has said. They try to make themselves owners and have no responsibility. So basically they're saying to the owner, we don't care what you say. We're going to do whatever we want. And I mean, just think about that for a second. Like, Sometimes we think of sin only in what is done, like the severity of what's done, but the severity of sin is also who you committed against. Here's what I mean. Follow me for a sample. Um, if I were to go up to one of you right now um, in the room, let me just, I don't know who I'm going to pick because I feel like I need to pick someone who would like take it well, um, but not want to like hurt me back and repond. Josh, there we go. Josh, like, I feel like I could do this to you. Let's say I go, I go up to Josh Guthrie and just punch him in the face and assault him. Like, <laughs> I know you're like, maybe I don't want to volunteer for this now. Let's say I did that. I'm not going to, but let's say I did. I'm going to be arrested and charged with assault. Fine, maybe a few months in jail at the most. Let's say I went up to the President of the United States and punched him in the face. What happens then? I go to Guantanamo Bay, and you'll probably never hear of me again. Like, it doesn't go well. Same action. Same action. What was different was the person that I did it against, and therefore the severity of what I did. Now, if God is an infinite being, what is the scale and scope of our sin? Infinite. Also, here's another thought. Like, if you ever thought about it, I think I may have done this a year or two ago here, but like everything in creation says yes to God. Like when you go through the Bible, like when, when he says for the Red Sea to part, it parts. When Jesus wants to walk on water, it becomes firm. When God wants it to rain, it does. And when he doesn't want it to rain, it doesn't. Everything in creation obeys God, except one thing, us. We're like the tenants who say, no, not going to do it. Like we see our sin in full display also in putting the son to death. Like, yes, it was the religious leaders in their day that did it, but let's just say, it would have been us too if we were there. And by the way, it was your and I sin who put Jesus on the cross. There's this great quote by John Stott that says, before we can recognize the cross as something done for us, we have to recognize it as something done by us. Like it was my sin that put Jesus there, not just the religious leaders. We see the heinousness of our sin, which that then magnifies the next thing, which was we see the enormity of God's patience. Like Jesus recounted basically in this parable, like the Old Testament and all the history leading up to then, which was almost 1,500 years. 
1,500 years of God sending prophets and them treating them bad and rejecting God, and God never gave up on them. And then God even sent his son then to die for them and to die for us. The patience of God is insane. It's so much different than ours. And here's how I know. Like, I've been to Disney World and Disneyland and observed families there, okay? Like, one of my favorite things at Disney World Disneyland is going to rise. The other thing is watching families have meltdowns. It's a really entertaining show. Like, because the kids are tired. They don't want to do whatever the parents are wanting to do. And then it gets ugly in the happiest place on earth. And it's just fun. It's fun to watch. Or a better place if you can't afford to go there because it's really expensive. Go to Target or Walmart just watch families interact. It's awesome, right? It's like kids don't do what their parents want to do, and then it gets ugly fast. Our, pa- our patience wears very thin very quickly. 1,500 years <laughs> like God's doing this, and they don't respond, and yet he sends his son Jesus to die for him. He is such a patient God. Why is he patient? 2 Peter 3, I believe 9, says um, God is patient because he wants everyone to come to repentance. Oh, we are such... Good, innocence, and bad sinners. We're really good at it, and we're terrible because we sin, and yet God is so patient with people. It's insane. It's just insane. But then here's two other themes that I saw, God's judgment and God's grace, because here's the, God is so patient. But eventually, like in the story, there was a day the bill came due, and the owner like said, all right, that's enough. There is a day, whether when we die or when Jesus comes back, we're gonna have to stand before God, and there's gonna be one of two ways that can go. There's God's judgment, which we see in this passage. Jesus says, listen, like, if, if you don't have me as a cornerstone of your life, like, I will become a stone that crushes you. Like, that's a very vivid like, graphic imagery, but it's just the reality. Um, but then there's a second option for us, which is God's grace. We're like, well, where do you see God's grace in the passage? I've seen it in a few places. He doesn't just come and slaughter the tenants after the first time that they, like, mistreat the servant. Like, he sends them over and over again. I see the grace in sending the son. And, like, what we as Christians know in God sending his son is what? He came to die for the very religious leaders in this text that were rejecting him. Remember on the cross, Jesus looks at the people that just put him there, and what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends into heaven, the church is going elsewhere. Guess what? Some of the people that then repent are the priests and the scribes, the people in the story around Jesus. The grace of God is so on display here. Okay. All right. I could go, but we're starting to slow down on time. I got to get us to the next question. So I'm looking through all this stuff, and I'm thinking, this is what this means. All right, now I'm going to ask the next question. Okay, that's awesome. Why does it matter? So taking the foundation of some of those bullet points I just showed you, I'm thinking, okay, what are some of the main takeaways? Like looking at my life, is there anything that needs to change? Like the way I think, the way I feel, the things I do. I'm also going, oh, here's an important question. What in this passage is for me and what is in it for others? And I would, by the way, say this is not just when you're reading the Bible by yourself. Every Sunday, you may come to church one Sunday and be like, ah, I kind of like already knew that. I, I knew that like Bible story before. Like, ah, I think I'm like actually doing some of the things that he said. God sometimes gives you a message from his word like on a Sunday or in your daily reading, not for you, but for someone else. For the people in your life that you're discipling, for the people you're leading. Like I always think of it like this. God, what do I need to learn? What do I need to live? But also who do I need to lead to do the things that I just learned and am living? Tracking? All right, so these are the questions I'm asking. Now, let's go back to our passage. Based on what I gleaned and what I saw in the text of what it means, here are some things that stuck out to me, right? This passage does point, and we already just went through it, to our sin, God's patience, and then we get to choose either his judgment or his grace. I love drawings. I don't know if you're a visual person. I am. So I just did this drawing. Like, there's our sin, but guess what? God is so patient with us. But here's the thing is, 
God's patience, unfortunately, can sometimes lead people to their indifference. They're like, well, God's not punishing me for this, so I might as well just keep doing it. Eventually, the bill is going to come due. And we have two options. We can go with God's judgment or God's grace. And here's what all that will come down to. And then this was, I believe, the second point, which is going to take me a second to find. I believe it's right here. Whether you receive grace or judgment comes down to what you do with Jesus. That's really to be one of the big points in this passage. He says, listen, I am the cornerstone you should build your life on. But if you don't, that same stone will crush you. What, like, whether you receive God's judgment or God's grace, all comes down to what you do with Jesus. Like, if you're here and you're not a believer, and we're so glad you're here. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus' appeal to you to receive him as your Lord and Savior is the most critical decision of your entire life. Bar none. And he does not want you to face his judgment. He wants you to receive his grace for all the times that you have told God no. But really what it comes down to is we get the choice. Um, I was walking around about a month or two ago, and it just stuck me of this idea that sometimes people talk about choose Jesus, but I'm like, everyone, in a sense, chooses Jesus. Because you can choose to receive his grace, but if you don't choose that, you're basically then saying, I'm going to choose his judgment instead. We all choose Jesus. My plea for you is to choose his grace by receiving him as your Lord and Savior. All right, so this was a thing that stuck out to me. Another thing, the, a takeaway from Luke 20 of why does it matter? I mean, this sounds obvious, but we don't want to be like the Jewish leaders in this passage. Like, kind of like my friend who like kind of elevated Pharaoh, even though he was the bad guy. Jewish leaders, not people we want to be like. Specifically, I wrote down a few ways. And if you can't read it, I'll read it for you. They were hard-hearted and hard of hearing. Like, this is the danger of receiving truth in the gospel over and over again. If you then don't apply it or obey it, you become hardened to it. And it becomes harder to hear it. I've seen this over and over again. It's just the truth. So I, I need to be aware of that. I need to be thinking, okay, is there anything that God has been speaking to me through my time in his word, like, like daily or as I've been sitting here on Sundays, is there anything that God has been speaking to me that I'm now not obeying or applying? And if there is, I need to be careful because I might become hard-hearted to that and it's going to be hard to hear and then obey. Um, another thing that stuck out to me is they built their lives on a faulty foundation. Their foundation was their power. They were in charge and they loved their power and on the temple. Like their power was all built around the temple and they built their life on that foundation and it was an awful choice because it was a faulty one. They had the opportunity for Jesus to become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is really was the stone that was put in the temple in all buildings that the whole thing was built upon. And Jesus wanted to be that cornerstone, but they rejected him. And instead, they rested on their power and on the temple. Guess what happened? Because they reject Jesus and they continued in their way. In 70 AD, the Jews rebelled against Rome. You know what Rome did? They came in and they destroyed the entire temple, which then got rid of the Jewish leader's power. They built their life on a foundation that was faulty, and it came crumbling down literally. In the same way, we can build our lives on some faulty foundations, and it will only crumble. It could happen here in this life, but honestly, sometimes it's scarier, especially, I would say, for a non-believer, because we're like, okay, how does this fit with believers? Stick with me. We'll get there in a second. For a non-believer, it almost scares me more if the foundation that they built on that's faulty doesn't crumble. Because at one point, they're going to have to stand before God. And I would rather them see that, like, you could build your life, for example, around your job. What happens if you lose it? You could build your foundation around your money. What if there's a recession? 
all these things. And so sometimes, if anything, what I pray for sometimes for people who don't believe in Jesus is, God, may it crumble so they can see it was never a good foundation to build on. But listen, even as a believer, I sometimes build on bad foundations, okay? All right, I got to wrap up here. Another couple things. We as a nation or as a church, we can't assume a privileged position with God regardless of obedience to Jesus. And I said, see Romans 11. Um, you can look up Romans 11. I don't have time to talk about it. But here's what I mean by this is we can't become arrogant. The Jewish leaders basically got this point where they are like, God has blessed us. We're God's people. It's all going to go well for us. And then they kept disobeying the prophets and they disobeyed Jesus and it didn't go well for them. We as a church can't be so arrogant as to say like, hey, everything is going to go great. God's blessing is on us. We're awesome. Look at what happened at Camp Arcade. And there's nothing could ever go wrong. It could go terribly wrong if we don't stick with Jesus if we don't keep keeping the gospel central in our beliefs and in how we practice, if we don't keep Jesus' teachings before us and by his grace keep seeking to obey him, it can go terribly wrong. So that was just a warning you I saw. Final thing, we should pray for our spiritual leaders because of what I just said. Like these were the spiritual leaders that Jesus was like addressing and they led their people into destruction because they weren't obeying God. And this just, I was like, oh, we've got to pray for our spiritual leaders, for the leaders in our church, for leaders across the nation. Like, they have such a weight on them, and what they say matters so much. Oh, we need to pray that they stick with Jesus. They lead us into a gospel-centered living and gospel-centered churches. Like, we got to pray for them. Okay, those are the things that stuck out to me. You're like, well, this stuck out to me, or this was a takeaway for me. Awesome. You're in the kitchen. You're cooking with me. It's working. Great. All right. So then let's go to our last two questions. Okay, this is all great, but like where's the gospel in it? And here's why I say this. Like if we're not careful, I could like, I haven't been praying for our spiritual leaders. Oh, like I have, I'm starting to build my life on a faulty foundation. All these other things. I could go thing by thing and think like, I'm such a failure. I'm so awful. God must hate me. Oh, I can walk in out in all this guilt. I don't think that's what God wants for me as I'm reading these passages on the, my own or on Sundays. Instead, I have to go back to the gospel. And the gospel is this, is I have fallen short, but this is why Jesus' death on the cross is so important. It's why we saw when we looked at God's grace, it's why it matters so much. It's because God's acceptance of me is not based on how well I'm doing these bullet points. It's based on Jesus and that he did them perfectly in my place. And so when I'm reading these things, I go to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I have one here and I have one there, but oh, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. This is literally what I do when I'm reading my Bible. Here's another thing I got from this passage, though. I think going back to our drawing. Um, that drawing I showed before, let me go like this. I would say this more applies to a person who doesn't believe in Jesus. Because ultimately they've got to decide what they're going to do to Jesus, and that will lead either to their judgment or to God's grace and their forgiveness. For believers, we don't have the same drawing. Because we don't have any judgment. As I said last week, Romans 8.1, no condemnation in Christ. Instead, ours looks more like this. As believers in Jesus, I don't know if this is breaking news to you, but we're still going to sin. Like, <laughs> we're still going to blow it and, and not live up to the things that we read in God's word. And guess what? God is still so patient. Like, sometimes people almost, like, they live as if they think this. Like, before I knew Jesus, man, God was really patient with me. But now that I've accepted him, he's like, get it together right now. Like, no, like, God is still so patient with us. He knows we're works in progress. And guess what? We're not going to be finished until we get to heaven. He's so patient with us, but we do have decision make. Like when we read in his word and we're confronted with some things we're falling short of, we have two choices. We can repent and say, I'm so sorry, God, for how I fell short. Receive his grace. Or we can say, I'm going to keep doing it anyways. But as a believer in Jesus, here's what I know. It's like, guess what? I don't then receive judgment. 
because it's, it's, it's all grace for me. Instead, what Hebrews says is that we're children and God does discipline his children whom he loves. Why does God discipline us? To drive us back to his grace. So I, I, I even alluded to it a few minutes ago. Like, I'm just thinking, God, if I'm building my life on a faulty foundation, I hope I repent and receive your grace. But let's say I don't. Then what I really pray, even if I don't mean it at the time, is that, God, would you make that foundation crumble to drive me back to you and your grace? Make it, make it sense. Oh, once you start reading the scripture this way, it's just so amazing and so refreshing and vibrant. Now, let's go to our last question. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to black it out. So we've done all this. Then it's like, okay, what do we pray? Actually, I'm going to put one back up there. What I like to do, if I've like written down some takeaways, I then just go thing by thing and say, how can I pray about this? So like, we as a nation, oh, next one, I'm sorry. I left out one. We should pray for our spiritual leaders. Like, if this is a Monday morning and I'm reading this, I literally say, oh God, just be with Rob and be with the elders of our church. Lord, I pray that they would have a relationship with you. I pray that you would keep them always preaching the gospel. They would hear your voice and that they would lead us the way you would want them to lead us. God, and then I maybe go to some of these others. Lord, I feel like maybe I've built my life on this foundation recently. Oh, forgive me for doing that. Thank you, though, for dying for me so that I can be forgiven of this. Lord, help me now to make you as the cornerstone of my life. You are the only sure foundation. I'm just going to go think my thing, and I'm just going to start praying. And I'm going to start thanking him, too, for how he's revealed. I'm going to thank him. Oh, God, you've shown me your patience and your grace and his passion. Thank you that you've shown that to me. And let me just tell you, when you start doing this, oh, your relationship with Jesus can just take off. I'm just going to be honest right now. You may have felt this already. If not, I'll say it for you. Like, sermons like this aren't the most dynamic because of how I've like, brought you in the kitchen. Like, so this hasn't been really dynamic with all these illustrations and stories and things like that. But let me tell you this. If you will do this day in and day out, this may not have been a dynamic sermon, but you will have a dynamic life with Jesus. You will. Like if you will consistently feed yourself from God's word every day using something that we've taught to, your life will change in insanely amazing ways. But as you do it, remember, we do it on the basis of the gospel and what Jesus has done. Here's what I want us to do. We're going to actually put this into practice because I said, how should we pray? We're going to go ahead and practice right now together. So here's what I want you to do. Um, I had my takeaways up there. I had the things that stuck out to me and things that I need to think through. What, what stuck out to you from Luke 20? What was God stirring in you, convicting in you, encouraging you with? I just want you to take a few minutes and pray. If it was something of an encouragement, thank God for that. If it was something of conviction, just pray about that. Go to the gospel and remind yourself that Jesus loves you, that he died for you for where you fall short, but just wrestle with that. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to have just a few minutes of, of quiet. The band will come back up here and maybe play some background music, but just think about that in your seat. And then what I'll do is in a few minutes, I'll pray for us. And I really, really hope this time has been helpful for you. Let's pray.